Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. Today, I want to talk about math. Now, I've probably scared about half of you away with that statement, uh, but specifically, I want to talk about probability. And there go the rest of you. In all seriousness, there are often a lot of statistical and mathematical findings that are presented in court to support both the prosecution and the defense's arguments. So there are a lot of opportunities for misinterpretation or even selective interpretation. Sometimes it's done intentionally, sometimes out of ignorance. Whatever the case may be, math is hard, and the kind of math presented in the courtroom is really difficult for anyone to wrap their head around, even the experts. Probability is extremely important to understand at a very basic level to be able to fully understand statistics and statistical significance. Forensic psychology is only one of many classes I teach. I also teach undergraduate and graduate level statistics courses for the behavioral sciences. I'm going to do my best to explain the phenomenon known as the prosecutor's fallacy without boring you to death or losing you along the way. It's a pretty tall order, but I'm hoping this will bring awareness to a serious problem that we have when it comes to interpreting statistical findings, odds, and probability. The prosecutor's fallacy is rooted in Bayes' theory. Bayes' theory is based on conditional probability. Events don't occur in a vacuum. It extends the probability from looking at independent events to looking at events that have related outcomes. More often than not, the environment around us creates conditions that make true randomness impossible. For example, if I asked you what the probability of having a baby that is a girl, what would you say? Now your choices are, for the sake of this argument, I'm sticking with boy versus girl. Your choices are boy or girl. So there's one chance out of two that you'll have a girl, or 50% chance. Great, that makes sense. Now what if I asked you what the chances of having two girls is? You might say that your options are girl and a boy, girl and a girl, and boy and a boy. Okay, so your answer is one-third or 33%? If you said that, you'd be wrong, and I'll explain why. We didn't specify birth order in the question, so your options actually include having a girl and a boy, having a boy and a girl, a girl and a girl, and a boy and a boy. That's four options, one of which gives you two girls. So the answer is one out of four, or a 25% chance that you'll have two girls. This highlights the importance of the sample space. If we alter the question to say what are the chances of having a girl if you already have a girl, then you'd be looking at two different options, girl and girl, or girl and a boy, making it 50%. Cool, huh? I'm a big nerd, so this is really cool for me. <laughs> if it's not cool for you, I totally understand. The point is, it matters what happens around us. It's not always the case that there's a 50% chance of having a boy or a girl. The sequence makes a difference. I'll use another simple example before moving on to case studies. The lottery. People usually say it's not wise to play the lottery because the odds of winning are so low. It's probably true. The odds of you winning are pretty low, but the odds of someone who plays winning are actually pretty high. 
So when a lottery player is accused of cheating based on the low probability of winning, it would be incorrect to assume that low probability of winning without cheating equates to the player's probability of innocence. The prosecutor, if it went to trial in that case, is not accounting for the number of people who actually play the lottery. And given the number of people who play, which is usually a lot, the chances of any of them winning is actually pretty high. So what exactly is the prosecutor's fallacy? It involves the prosecutor exaggerating or misinterpreting the likelihood of a defendant's guilt. Though it's important to note that defense attorneys can use this as well to downplay the likelihood of their client's guilt. We'll explore a case where that happens. You can see this fallacy play out when interpreting DNA evidence. Many DNA databases are so vast and the methods of detecting partial matches so advanced that the likelihood of finding a match just by chance, or in other words, in error, is very elevated. But most lawyers don't take that into account when presenting their results. The odds of having a matching DNA profile have nothing to do with the odds that person is innocent or guilty, which is often confused by prosecution when trying to convince the jury of the defendant's guilt. One of the most problematic ways this fallacy is exhibited is through the explanation of DNA results. There are a whole host of things that can impact the viability of DNA samples, and many ways in which it can be interpreted incorrectly. There's enough to talk about this for at least four episodes, but I'm going to focus on presenting the outcomes of testing. Now let's assume the test was done right, and that there was an uncorrupted sample for simplicity's sake. There are unfortunately a lot of examples of the prosecutor's fallacy when it comes to DNA results. I'm gonna focus on one that is a little more recent in 2009, the McDaniel versus Brown case. So this case centered around the sexual assault of a minor. Originally, the victim identified the defendant's brother as the assailant. However, circumstantial evidence led investigators to the defendant. I've talked about eyewitness testimony before, so you may be thinking, okay, they're following the evidence because eyewitness testimony isn't always accurate. The major quote-unquote hard evidence in this case was DNA found on the victim's underwear. It matched the defendant with a 1 in 3 million chance that a person picked at random would have the same genetic profile found at the crime scene. Seems pretty compelling, no? That means for a population of about 300 million people, a hundred of them will have the same profile. What the prosecutor didn't fully consider and what the expert witness ended up misrepresenting during the trial was the relational aspect, the defendant's brother. The prosecutor asked the expert what the likelihood was that the DNA they found was from the defendant. She answered 99. 999967%. The prosecution then asked whether it was fair to say the likelihood of the DNA not belonging to the defendant was 0.00003% or the difference between 99.999967 and 100. The expert agreed, though this isn't technically correct. The prosecutor concluded that there was a 99% chance the DNA matched, meaning there was a 99% chance that the defendant was guilty. 
big red flag here. If you ever hear about this happening in a case, or if you witness it yourself happening in a case, this is bad, this is wrong. This is absolutely not how you should interpret those statistics. Most people want to know whether the DNA match means the defendant is guilty. But the numbers will never answer that question, no matter how much the prosecution wants them to. Think of it this way. If one in 10 people take a certain medication that is found at the crime scene, and then you find out that the suspect has a prescription for that medication, we wouldn't just assume that they're guilty just because they take that medication. Why not? Because one in 10 adults you stop randomly on the street would also have prescriptions for that medication, making it a 10% chance someone unrelated to the crime would be taking that medication. That one in 10 chance does not mean that there is a 10% chance that your suspect is not guilty. It also doesn't mean that there's a 90% chance your suspect is guilty. It also doesn't mean that there's a 10% chance the medication found at the scene does not belong to the subject. And it doesn't mean that there's a 90% chance the medication at the scene belongs to the suspect. And finally, it doesn't mean that there's a 10% chance the medication belongs to someone other than your suspect. All of those assumptions all mistake random match probability with guilt and the source of the evidence. So you can't say any of those things, even though prosecutors and defense attorneys say them all the time. The only thing the match probability, that one in 10 chance can tell you, is whether your suspect belongs in a group of people who may have possibly left that medication at the crime scene. It's the likelihood that a randomly selected person would have the medication or, when you're talking about DNA, the DNA profile found at the crime scene. In the McDaniel case, the expert made an incorrect interpretation of the match probability statistic it was incorrect to assume there was a 99% chance the defendant was the source of the DNA at the crime scene. It only relays the rarity of the profile at the scene and that the defendant possesses. What makes it worse is that there was another potential suspect named by the victim, the defendant's brother. Related individuals are much more likely to share genetic information compared to two unrelated people. So even though this profile was rare, it might not be so rare within a family. If you're thinking, did they compare the DNA sample to the brother's DNA? Did they compare the brother's DNA to each other's? Did they take samples from the whole family? The answer to all those questions is no, they did not. The expert incorrectly stated that the familial match probability or the probability that the brother of the defendant shared similar genetic characteristics was one in 6,500 a number that was later questioned and found to have no empirically valid source. Sketchy. She also incorrectly stated that there was only a 2% chance the two brothers would have the same genetic code. Experts who ended up looking into the numbers later came up with a 1 in 66 chance that at least one of the brothers in the family would share the profile. There were, I think, four brothers in the family total. Jurors never heard those numbers. They also weren't told that the numbers they were given had nothing to do with whether the defendant was the source of the DNA. In a review of appellate court cases where DNA match questions were presented, researchers found that nearly every case 
fell into the trap of the prosecutor's fallacy. The courts equated random match probability with a source or guilt probability. It's not just that the courts are misrepresenting these results, but they're also affirming convictions based on these incorrect interpretations. And that should terrify you. Let's look at another case example, that of Sally Clark. Sally Clark had two sons, both of which died within a few weeks of their birth. Their deaths were suspected to be SIDS related, which stands for Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, and it's usually attributed to sudden, unexplained deaths of children less than one year of age. This case occurred in England. After the death of her second son, both Sally and her husband were arrested, though charges against her husband were later dropped. There was evidence of trauma on both children, but that could be logically attributed to attempts at resuscitation by Sally when she realized they were not conscious. At her trial, an expert witness, a pediatrician, testified for the prosecution on the rarity of SIDS, saying the odds of both children dying from SIDS were 73 million to one. There was no other substantive evidence in the case against Sally. Even so, she was convicted of murdering her two children and sentenced to life in prison. Where did this 73 million to one statistic come from? The expert estimated the odds that any child dying of SIDS as 1 in 8,543. He then calculated the estimate of 73 million to 1 by multiplying the two factors, one for each child. However, multiplication should only be used for independent events, and these deaths are anything but independent. There were two brothers. And there is empirical evidence that there are genetic components related to SIDS. A more accurate estimate of two siblings dying of SIDS is 2.75 million to one, which is still pretty rare. In this case, the focus is all wrong. We're not looking at the probability of two children dying of SIDS. We're looking for the probability that the two children who died, died of SIDS, and not murder. The Royal Statistics Society published a press release on this subject two years after Sally's conviction, stating the jury made a decision based on faulty logic. What should have been presented is two different possibilities for the children's deaths, SIDS or murder. Two deaths by either of those possibilities are both extremely unlikely. We know one happened in this case. The relative likelihood of the deaths is where the focus should lie, not just the unlikelihood of both deaths being due to SIDS. It was later estimated for this particular case that it was nine times more likely to have two infants be victims of SIDS than be victims of murder. Sally appealed her case, though she lost her first appeal even though she hired her own expert witnesses to present the most accurate statistics. Through more thorough investigation into the deaths because of this appeal, it was discovered that the pathologist working for the prosecution withheld vital facts in the case, that her second child had a bacterial infection at the time of his death, which may have very well contributed to or been the cause of his death. It was this information that got the conviction thrown out, and Sally was released from prison 
after serving three and a half years for a crime she didn't commit. Another case example, this time from the defense's point of view, is the O.J. Simpson case. There was evidence in this case tying O.J. to the crime. However, the defense was able to use the prosecution's argument against them to introduce reasonable, though misleading, doubt in the case that resulted in his acquittal. The prosecution built their case around the fact that there was a history of domestic abuse in O.J. and Nicole's relationship. The defense used the correlation is not causation argument. Four million women were abused by their partners annually in 1992, though only one in 2,500 women were killed by their partners. This created a pretty compelling argument for the jury that few men who abuse their partners end up killing them. This is true, but it's irrelevant. How? We should be looking not at the probability that a man who abuses his wife will later kill her, which is 1 in 2,500, but the probability that an abused woman who was murdered was murdered by her abuser. These are two very different numbers. In 1993, 90% of murdered women who had been abused were murdered by their abuser. This was not presented to the jury. If the relevant information had been presented by the prosecution, we may have very well seen a different outcome to this trial. There are so many instances where the prosecutor's fallacy can impact the way in which we view events in our own lives. It isn't just related to crime statistics and DNA evidence. It can occur in any situation where we consider the probability of an event occurring. The important takeaway is always consider conditions that can affect an event or an outcome. Always question the framing of probability of an event occurring. And question the source of expert information. Just because someone has a fancy degree doesn't mean they're incapable of mistakes. As a last example, consider information presented by your doctor about a potentially life-threatening diagnosis. This is a source of a lot of confusion for patients. There's always a chance of false positives occurring in testing. This can happen in any type of medical testing and the chances of false positives change based on the, the type of test and the quality of the test. In other words, there's always a chance, however slight, that you could test positive for a medical condition that you don't actually have. These chances are often misinterpreted by medical professionals. Especially for rare conditions, positive results don't imply that you have the disease. Let's say one out of every 10,000 tests is a false positive for a rare disease that affects one in every 50,000 people. In that case, you would expect five people who don't have the disease to test positive, and the other 49,994 out of those 50,000 people sampled will test negative. In this example, we have five false positives and one true positive, meaning one in six people who do test positive truly have the disease. That equates to an 83% chance that if you tested positive for that disease, you don't actually have it. Though many medical professionals may misinterpret these numbers. Let's say you are one of those false positive tests. Your doctor may tell you that there's a 1 in 10,000 chance that you don't have the disease. 
This confuses the chances you would test positive if you didn't have the disease with the chances that you would not have the disease if you tested positive. And those are staggeringly different numbers just by taking into account the sample space or those who are tested for the disease and the prevalence of the disease. Always be aware of the false positive rate for diagnostic tests and whether you are in a high risk group for that disease. In our example, let's say a high risk individual has a 1% chance of infection. 500 of those 50,000 tests for the high risk group would end up being positive. Compare that with the five false positives and you have a 99% chance or 500 out of 505 of having the disease if you are at high risk. Bayes' method helps us take into account related outcomes and provides a way of reevaluating our assessments given new information. And hopefully through this last example, you can better understand how to interpret medical diagnoses and what questions to ask your doctor. The point isn't to distrust all medical professionals, but to take charge of your own health and be a proactive patient and advocate for yourself. If you liked this topic and want to learn more about probability, the prosecutor's fallacy, and the impact on DNA match interpretations, I have two reading suggestions for you. One is called The Drunkard's Walk, How Randomness Rules Our Lives by Leonard Mladenow. It's a great book about the history and effect of randomness, chance, and probability on our lives. And it was actually a gift from one of my students uh, a couple years ago, and it's, it's one of the best books I've read in a long time. The other recommendation is called Inside the Cell, The Dark Side of Forensic DNA by Aaron Murphy. This is a wonderful deep dive into when and how DNA testing goes wrong and highlights how fallible the process can actually be. Currently on sale for just $6 on Amazon. Thank you for listening to episode 19. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Hit that subscribe button so that you can have access to the newest episodes right when they're released. You can listen to The Forensic Files on the website at the-forensic-files.captivate.fm, which is linked in the episode notes. You can also listen anywhere you get podcasts, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can find me on Instagram at The Forensic Files Pod. Please reach out if you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, or requests. The email for this podcast is theforensicfilespod at gmail.com. Please leave me a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference in the algorithm, so more amazing people like you can find the podcast. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear in the episode was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young.